We're in business to save the planet, and we use making clothes to do that. For over 45 years, Patagonia has committed to taking responsibility for their impact on the environment by pioneering sustainable practices and inspiring other businesses to do the same. The cure for depression is action. Every one of us has to step up and do what you can according to what your resources are. Patagonia, in business to save our home planet. Join us. You're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries, a production of Duct Tape Thin Beer, with additional support from Kuat Racks, Because You Love Your Bike, and Kicking Horse Coffee. Wake up and kick ass. If you can picture walking through a parking lot with a ski mask rolled up on your head and a pistol in your pocket and as you're walking through the parking lot and getting closer to the bank your heart's beating faster adrenaline's starting to rush through your head and you can't believe you're about to do what you're about to do this is Roland Thompson and when you get to those doors and pull the ski mask down over your face and pull a loaded pistol out of your pocket and cock the hammer back. The adrenaline rush of that is, it's incredible. And I don't know that there's any adrenaline rush that's exactly like that. But when you're climbing a route that you've never done before and it's a grade or two above what you're comfortable with and you're a few feet above that bolt and you can see the next bolt but you got a few moves to go and you've got a dynamic move coming up that adrenaline is it's definitely the same intensity but it's just it's cleaner I don't know you want to talk about robbing a bank it's just intense it's this crazy intense feeling it's also like, it's got a very tangible dirtiness to it because you know, like, you're basically saying, I'm going to risk my life for whatever they have in the till at the time. It's pretty dirty. Typically, we tell stories about climbing, skiing, outdoor adventure, etc. But from time to time, a member of our outdoor community has a story. Not about a crumbling desert tower or a far-flung place, but about a moment or situation that most of us could only imagine or relate to in what we've seen in an over-the-top Hollywood film. And the reality of it is so much more fascinating that we have to share this story. Not all of us started climbing in college or learned to ski as little kids. Some of us found our passions by very circuitous routes. I'm going to go out on a limb here. It's a pretty sturdy one and guess that Roland's path to becoming a climber and snowboarder might be unique in this world. Today, our producer Jen Altschul brings you 081. I'm not going to say too much, other than if you haven't figured it out by now, today's episode contains adult topics might not be the best episode for little kids. I'm Fitz Hall, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries.
You can see the the bag that I put down and the money that she's putting in it. And then obviously the gun and the ski mask as well. So this is the picture from the newscast. Oh my God, you're a baby. Yeah, I was, I was 22 when I went in. So yeah, that's my mugshot, the official mugshot. Do you want to just start at what you feel like is the beginning and then I'll ask you questions? Are you talking before, like, be define beginning? Where do you think it begins? It begins as, you know, I was just this kid and I grew up in a house where there wasn't a lot of love at home. So, you know, I turned to my friends and that's who I sought acceptance from and friendship and love. Unfortunately, the group of friends that I picked were maybe not making the greatest choices in life. At a young age, you know, I started smoking cigarettes and smoking pot and breaking into cars and shoplifting. And I, I found my little niche with them by being a little bit more daring and wild than they were. And I just felt like they gave me a little bit of status. So I was always the first to try something that was really stupid. I don't know, it just kind of spiraled from there, you know. I, I continued to experiment with drugs and get into harder drugs and got kicked out of high school for fighting. So from there I ended up getting a construction job and there I was, I think I was 15 and I was working construction and just kind of destined to be a loser, I guess. For a few years, Roland continued to make the same life decisions. Just working meant that he had money for drugs and booze. But gradually, he started to turn his life around. He quit smoking pot all the time, just did his job, and kept a low profile. And then uh, I got hurt at work and hurt my back, lifting a big piece of concrete, and my doctor prescribed me a bunch of pain pills. And Then the girl he had just started dating was hit and killed by a drunk driver. And I'm not saying that I was looking for an excuse to just let myself go, but I sure took the opportunity when it came up. Found myself in a pretty dark place and was taking pain pills all the time, and I got fired from my job because I was late and I, was, I wasn't dependable anymore at work. And I was going through a prescription of 120 Percocets in like seven or eight days. One day I found myself in a position where I didn't have any pain pills and I experienced for the first time what withdrawing from heroin was like. And it's like, imagine the worst flu, the worst sickness you've ever had. You're hot, you're sweating, then you're cold and you're shaking and your skin's crawling and you're throwing up. It's impossible to get comfortable and that's where I found myself. And luckily for me, I had a friend who just so happened to be a, heroin addicts and I explained the situation to him and he was happy to oblige me with some heroin and I started using heroin and I figured out that I could sell my prescription pain pills for 400 bucks and have heroin for a month you know so I started selling my pain pills and obviously it got to a point where the pain pills weren't providing enough for my habit so I started looking for ways to make money stealing stuff from the store or and eventually it turned into packing a gun and planning robberies and I don't know. I always go hardcore at whatever I do in life and so robbing pizza joints and movie theaters turned into robbing banks. 
And uh, one day I <laughs> I wake up and I, I'm in a courtroom and the, the prosecutor's sitting there saying danger to the community and career armed criminal and and I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, man, wait a minute, like hold on, I'm just a kid. I grew up down the road, you know. I, I, I couldn't believe where I was at. I couldn't believe that I was in a federal courtroom and they're saying the United States of America versus Roland Thompson and talking about how I'm this career armed criminal that needs to go to prison for life. And I'm thinking, holy crap, you know, how the hell did I get here? I was arrested for Robin too. That's how I'll answer that. <laughs> how did you get caught? So I robbed the bank with my best friend. We robbed the same bank in about a two week span and we got away. And then <sighs> three or four months later, him and his wife decided to go back and rob the bank again. A third time. A third time. The first two times, we caught them by surprise. The third time, there was die packs, two tracking devices. It was a pretty easy catch for the cops. So my co-defendant told on me, gave up information about me. Your best friend? At the time, he was my best friend, yeah. I was one of the groomsmen at his wedding, which, ironically enough, we paid for part of his wedding with bank robbery money. And then we paid for his honeymoon with bank robbery money. But I'll say this, he was using heroin at the time, and there's no friends when you're a heroin junkie. I mean, loyalty and, and that kind of stuff, it's, everything comes second to your addiction, and I don't really know why he did what he did, but I'm sure he felt justified at the time. Ironically enough, I was already locked up for separate charges. And one day they told me to get ready for court. And when I got out to the booking area to go to court, there was two U.S. Marshals there. And I knew I was in trouble. <laughs> Roland pled guilty to robbing two banks, one with a firearm, and was sentenced to 15 years in prison. When he was caught, he was already serving a four-year sentence in Draper State Prison for aggravated robbery. He would finish the remainder of his four-year sentence in the Utah State System, then be transferred to a maximum security federal prison to serve the additional 15 years. As you can imagine, I was pretty upset that I was in prison for as long as I was. I felt like my friend betrayed me. I was in a bad place. I was angry. I was getting in fights. The administration put a guy in my cell, and and I found out he was a snitch, you know. He told on someone, and so I beat him up. I was 100% vested in the prison culture. Like, you don't help the cops. If someone disrespects you, you 
you stab them or you hit them in the head with a lock in the sock or you at the very minimum punch them in the face and you really don't think about consequences because you know if you let somebody disrespect you then everyone's going to know it and it's going to follow you for the rest of your prison sentence and in prison like all you have is your respect I was still searching for acceptance from people and I, I didn't like being lonely and those were things that I carried from my childhood, and so I, I that's what I sought while I was in prison. And in prison, the more violent or the more high-profile your case is, the more respect you get. And my case was all over the news, and so people knew me right out the gate. So 18 months in, I get a visit from my lawyer, and I'm told that my co-defendant is going to trial and that he's requesting me to testify on his behalf. And he, what he wants me to testify about, whether or not the guns were real. If Roland's co-defendant, his former best friend Josh, had simply pled guilty to the robberies like Roland did, he would have received a 32-year sentence. But... Josh figured that if he could convince the court that the guns he and Roland used from the robberies were fake, he could potentially get his sentence reduced further. So he opted to gamble, to go to trial, and to try to convince Roland to testify on his behalf. And I told him to go to hell. Basically, I wasn't going to help him. Well, the next thing I hear is they tell me, hey, Thompson, get ready for court. Roland was taken to the downtown courthouse in Salt Lake. But when he got there, he wasn't sent to court. Instead, the U.S. District Attorney pulled him into an office and told Roland he wanted to offer him a plea deal. He wanted Roland to testify against his co-defendant in exchange for time off of his sentence. And I basically laughed in his face, told him F you, and get me out of there. I said, I chose my side. I'm a convict, I'm in prison, and you're a cop, and you're out. And my attorney came in and said, listen, Roland, you're 23, you're in prison for 15 years, you're doing a lot of time, and you're given an opportunity right now to reclaim some of your life. And the only thing I could think of was, there's no way I'm gonna be a snitch in prison. I know firsthand what happens to snitches, and on top of that, I'm gonna be going to federal prison maximum security federal prison and so my lawyer ironically enough has a son who's in jail for bank robbery at the exact same time and all she can see when she looks at me is her son and she's almost in tears she begged me basically don't go the route that you're gonna go and I sat there and for once, I actually thought about what's it going to be like when you get out, dude? Like, are you going to have fuck the world tattooed on your neck like you're planning on? Are you going to be a convict that had all this mad respect and get out and then what? All that mad respect, all that clout and that you got in prison doesn't mean anything. 
In fact, everything that you earn in prison, that you work for, all that convict shit, now it's going to work against you. And I feel like I looked into my future right then and I just said, you know what? I'm going to do it. And, (laughs) you know, it's funny because all I did was admit to what he told them. I didn't even tell him anything new, you know? And, I mean, it is what it is. I, I felt justified at the time. But mostly I just, I wanted to change my life. By testifying against Josh, Roland's sentence for all of his crimes was reduced to 10 years total. He'd already been in for a year and a half. He'd serve another four years in the state prison, then he would be transferred to federal prison for the remaining four and a half years. Roland had earned enough respect at Draper State that the next four years went all right. But ever looming was the reality that the time would come when he'd have to face federal prison, labeled as a snitch. I was really hoping to go to a medium security or maybe even a low security, but luckily for me, they sent me to a maximum security prison in Kentucky, um, McCreary, Kentucky. And uh, the first thing, you get into prison and you get to intake and you go inside this little office with a, one of the officers there and he says, hey, you know, is there any reason why you shouldn't be out in general population? And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, there's a reason, but I don't want to go to the hole. And I don't know. I just went for it. I didn't tell him. I went out into general population and uh, I made it for almost a year before they found out it's it's a constant witch hunt in prison it's if anyone can find out something wrong with you they will somebody found out my case and some guys pulled some knives on me and told me it was time to go and luckily for me i was pretty well respected among my peer group because i didn't smoke i didn't drink i didn't do drugs all of which are in prison i didn't gamble All I did was work out, play sports, and play guitar. So I didn't get caught up in all the prison bullshit. If I told you something, that's what I was going to do, you know? And so the guys that had the highest status in my unit, they respected me because I was who I was. So when it came down to it, there were some guys that really wanted to stab me and hurt me. And there were some guys that were like, you know what? Just let the dude go. If I would have put up a fight, then I would have got a fight. It would have been ugly, but they said, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. And I said, all right, see you guys later. And they let me walk out. They put me in protective custody and I was in the hole for like 110 days and here I am 
laying on my bunk in a room that's eight by ten. It's got a shower and a toilet, and you you just don't get out. And I'm thinking, this is my life. They're going to send me to another maximum security prison, and I'm going to have to decide whether or not I want to go out on the yard. And if I do go out into general population, they might stab me, they might kill me, they might beat me up, or I go to the hole. And I go to another prison, and I go to the hole, and it's just this vicious cycle, and I got four years of this left. And it was really... I don't want to say that I lost my mind, but I was right there on the edge... When you're in that situation and starting to lose your mind, did you have an out if you were like, fuck this, like, I thought I wanted to turn my life around, but, like, I'm not going to make it through another four years of this in here. Like, I don't. is there an out? Do you know what I'm asking? I do. Um, so when I was in jail going to court for my federal charges um i knew how much time i was looking at and i one night i just decided that was it i couldn't do it i was a piece of shit anyway so what's the point of even trying so i i got a sheet i tied the sheet to the bunk above me i put my head through the loop and it's common prison lore that if you twist yourself up to the point where you can't breathe you won't have enough time to twist back before you die. It was about one o'clock at night and the lights were out and my celly was sleeping in the bunk above me and I twisted myself up and the next thing I remember I'm laying face down on the floor and apparently I twisted back out and fell on the floor. That was the one time that I actually made an attempt to make it all stop. I just wanted to go home. I felt like I was a decent enough person inside and I genuinely wanted a different life. And I just, that's the thing about prison. You can't have it. Once you're there, you're there. I came up with this strict regimen where I would get up in the morning and I'd work out and I'd shower, clean the room, I'd read a nonfiction book in the afternoon, read a fiction book at night, I'd write a letter every day at three o'clock. And I just, had this little schedule that I did every day, day in and day out for months, you know, and try to not to go crazy. After nearly six months in solitary confinement, Roland was transferred to a medium security prison and allowed back into general population. So I get transferred from a high security prison to a medium security prison. And instead of going through what I just went through at the max, I decided that I was going to control my destiny. So the first day, the first hour that I get to this new prison, I go and talk to the guy who's in charge of all the white guys all the inmates. He told the guy about his case, told him if there was going to be a problem, he wanted to deal with it then. Unfortunately, 
the guy decided to talk it over with a few other guys, who also decided to talk it over with a few other guys. And before Roland knew it, the entire 1,100 inmates knew that he had testified against his co-defendant. And there's two things you don't want to be in prison. You don't want to be a child molester, and you don't want to be a snitch. Uh, I guess, fortunately for me, they decided not to jump me, but they made my life a living hell. It took almost three months before anybody would really even talk to me. I'd go into the chow hall and I'd sit down at a table and all the guys at the table would get up and go sit somewhere else. I wanted to feel accepted and I wanted to feel friendship and love, but I was the last person on that prison yard who was going to get it from anybody. And so I was just a loner, you know, I did my thing every day and I played guitar and I worked out a ton and Spent three years like that. I'll never forget it. You know, they knock on the door and tell me, hey, Thompson, it's time to go. It was 8 in the morning on Thursday, April 9th, 2015. For the first time in almost a decade, I put on a normal pair of pants and a normal pair of shoes and a a belt <laughs> and the cop gives me a ride to Bluegrass Airport in Kentucky and he pulls up puts the car in park and he's like alright man I'm sitting in the back looking around like alright and he's like we're here I'm like okay he's like no dude get out it's time to go and I I was terrified and I was uncontrollably happy I can't explain the feeling and so I get out and I go into the airport and my cousin who lives in Kentucky is there to meet me and he buys me breakfast and we're sitting there talking and he's like man you made it and I was like holy shit dude I made it I can honestly say that I've never once thought of going back to that life. That whole Robin Banks drug addict life. Roland flew back to Utah, moved into a halfway house, reunited with his family, worked a few different jobs, dated a few different girls. And I was just floating around. Like, I was really happy to be out, but I hadn't really found a purpose. And I met somebody who they said, hey, let's go snowboarding. And I'm like, man, I haven't been for years. And they're like, well, let's go anyway. And it was an icy night and I strapped in and made a couple turns and caught my toe edge and landed right on my face and rolled over and went, this is badass. I'm snowboarding and went and bought a season pass, bought a new snowboard, 
met these group of guys that were just really good dudes. And I was riding with them all the time. And I, it's funny because I was terrified to tell anybody about my past. Most of these guys are computer programmers. One of them manages an oil rig. They're fairly responsible, successful people, you know? And, and I was thinking, man, there's no way in hell they're going to want to hang out with me if they find out I'm a convicted bank robber. So I rode with them for probably three or four months. And then one day I just decided, you know what? I'm going to tell them. As I told people, it was the completely opposite reaction. Everyone was like, you could never convince me that you're a bad person. Everyone totally accepted me and I was, I was completely shocked. Before that community started snowboarding with, did you feel like you had friends who actually accepted you or cared about you? Like, was there a time in your life that you had felt that way before then? You know, I mean, I, I always felt like my friends didn't want me around. I was younger than them. I just kind of felt like everyone else was cool and I wasn't, which kind of fed my drive to do crazy shit, to do something that nobody else would dare to do because I felt like they would accept me a little bit more. So no, I... I Not really. When the resorts closed for the season, Roland's buddy Jeremy introduced him to a climber named Shandy. Our first official date was climbing, and she asked me if I wanted to lead the first route, and I was like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Roland fell fast for both Shandy and rock climbing. We spent the whole summer climbing everywhere in Utah and Idaho. We went to Lake Tahoe and climbed, and it, it's, it's my therapy. It's something that helps relieve stress and helps me get my mind to where I like it to be, you know. And in the wintertime, I, I snowboard. I hit big jumps and in the summer, we go to the most beautiful places we can find to climb. And I, I absolutely, I feel like I was made for that sport, or that sport was made for me. Do you feel like there's a part of you that needs that in some form? Like that kind of adrenaline rush and that kind of like pushing yourself and pushing past your fears and going for it in some form? Uh, without question, yeah. But I feel like it's a pretty healthy need to have. Anybody from Utah who goes to the federal system, the last three digits of their prison number is 081. So when you're in prison, it's kind of like, oh, you're from Utah, you're 081. And since I've been out, I've met people that have been to prison and we'll talk for a little while. And I don't usually tell them immediately, but I'll just throw it in there at the end of the conversation. Like, hey, you know, I'm 081. And they're like, no, you're not. And I'm like, yeah. Zero nine eight eight four zero eight one. There's a lot of people who 
are going through similar experiences or similar hard times or what feels like the hardest thing in their life. And you just can't give up. Even if you're in the hole and got four years to go in prison, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And I can promise you from my experience, the light is so much better than even you can even imagine it. If you didn't have the bad things happen to you, how could you fully experience the good things? You know, how could you go through the best time in your life without going through the worst time in your life? I get almost like teary-eyed when I think about finding some kid who's lonely and doesn't feel loved at home and doesn't feel friendship and doesn't feel, you know, accepted and just is ready to give up and do something stupid and that kid that was me if i can find that kid somewhere and say hey you know it gets better life's not always going to be like this hang in there buddy that's that's what i want to do you know it's all worth it Diaries is made possible by the good people at Patagonia, who have launched an online used Patagonia clothing store. That's pretty cool. Here's how it works. Buy a new or used piece of Patagonia gear, wear it, love it, repair it, and when you're done with it, if it's still got some life in it, you can trade it in at any Patagonia store for credit towards the next piece of gear. Learn more at WarnWear.com. Additional support comes from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Check out their lineup at KuatRacks.com. And support for the show also comes from our newest sponsor, Vossen Brewing, who will officially open the doors of their Richmond Tap Room tomorrow, July 29th. If you're in Richmond, Virginia, stop by and give them a warm welcome. Congratulations, guys. Otherwise, drop by VossenBrewing.com. You, you also make the Dirtbag Diaries possible. We really appreciate your support, whether that's in the form of an email or a donation. The donations help big time. It's how we built the sound recording studio that I'm currently in. Pretty incredible. If you donate now, it's a token of our support. We'll give you your very own Dirtbag Diaries theme ringtone. That's right. Thank you so much to everyone who's already donated. A huge thanks to Roland for sharing his story. These days, Roland is launching a public speaking career and working on a book about his experience. The title of his book and his website, I Am 081. Visit IAM081.com for more information on upcoming events or how to contact Roland. Also, big thanks to Taylor Reese for helping us find this story. Music today from ADC Bicycle, Jason Tyler Burton, Kai Engel, Little Glass Men, MC Culla, and Roland Thompson. The tracks are courtesy of Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Heath Cotto composed our theme song. You can find links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Jen Altschul and me, Fitzcahal. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. You've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for tuning in.